as well. Well, if you have a Bible, turn to the second book in it, Exodus. We are going through this series uh, called God's Glory and Redemption. We've been looking at uh, this Old Testament beautiful narrative of God's people getting formed in the nation of Israel. And today, specifically, we'll look at uh, the beginning of the life of Moses. And so that's where we'll spend our time this morning. And we said in the last two weeks, uh, I wanted to review this with us because everything in the book of Exodus, for me at least, as far as I'll go in this direction, hinges on these two points. That God is working a good plan built on his promises. I want you to know that, that he has a plan. He's God. He, he makes it his and he unfolds it according to his promise. The second thing though, that plan rarely plays out like we think it's going to. So you and I being finite in our finite minds, we don't get to see ahead of us. Um, often is our life as well. God has a plan, but it rarely plays out the way that we think it's going to. And then we said this last week, God often uses the pressures of life to cause great growth in the lives of his people. And so if you feel the weight of the world at times burdened, you're much like the children of Israel in that way. And often God uses those things to grow us in unimaginable ways. So with that, uh, I'm going to read uh, through from chapter 2. But before, Just a brief note before I begin, and I, I think I mentioned this uh, in weeks past, but if not, I'm going to say it again. When we read the Old Testament narratives, it's, it's a beautiful story, and a lot of times we read it, but I want you to read it and understand it and see it with the detail as if you're living it. Sometimes we look at it with a Sunday school lens of like, yeah, I know that story, or, or we see little Moses flanograph, and he's part in the Red Sea, but these are real people just like you and I. And so look at the detail of the story. Imagine the emotion as, as these things are played out. And so insert yourself, if you will, and we'll talk about it. This we're going to read verses 1 through 10 of chapter 2, where we're introduced to Moses for the first time. It says, Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen, bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. She did that because Pharaoh was decreed to kill all the infant boys. And his sister, this little boy's sister, stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse this child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away, and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So then the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. With that, I want to pray for us as we've read God's word. I will pray for you, but you ought to pray as well and just say, God, would you just speak to my heart today that I would know you, know your truth, and apply it to my lives. You do that, simple prayer, and then I'll pray for us together. Let's pray. 
Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, for its truth, certainly for your goodness and love, and and certainly for your plan for each one of us as we began in worship today, just to know that you created us, formed us together in our mother's womb, that you had an eye on us before we even came to be. That is extremely hard to understand. And so, Father, today I would pray that you would soften our hearts, that we would meet you through your word, and that we would know who you are and, and how you love us and what you desire for us and from us, that we may be carrying out your good and perfect will for your glory. We thank you. Thank you for the gift of Jesus. And in our belief in him gives us life in his name and all these things we pray in his beautiful name. And all God's people said. So you and I stand really spiritually at the edge of impossible situations. What do I mean by that? We stand at the edge of oftentimes in our life things that we are confronted with, circumstance that maybe you find yourself in one of them right now where you just think that the circumstances surrounded my deal around me are impossible. Maybe, maybe it's a job struggle. Maybe it's a health struggle. Whatever it is, you look at that and say, how can God possibly work through this situation to bring it to redemption? We stand at the threshold of that in moments in our life. Often people ask me, um, as a pastor, you're going to be surprised that they ask me. Some people see me around town and they say, like, can I just ask you a question? Like, what do you do every other day of the week? And we think about that question a lot. We joke about it. Yeah, I work one day a week, Sunday. But when I think about that, when they summarize it, I'm the guy in ministry that often gets called into a lot of your impossible situations. If I think about it, I'm the guy that has my own, but I get called into a lot of crisis things and, and aid and, and, and sought wisdom. Still can't figure out why that, that even happens. Like people would seek wisdom from me, but I guess it's the role. And so I step into, if you will, impossible situations for the hope that I will offer you some, some, some hope in trusting that God will be faithful to work this. So you stand at the threshold. That's what spiritual life is about. My job, if you will, in many ways, I stand at that threshold with you to say, point you to Jesus because he's faithful. He could work this towards redemption to give us hope in those impossible situations. Such is the life of Moses when we first encounter him in this text. Now the Hebrew word for Moses is masha. Everybody say that. We see that in verse 10 when Pharaoh's daughter names him Masha because it means drawn out. And you and I stand at the threshold of impossible situations, drawn out, if you will, by God. We're going to see that this week Moses is drawn out by God's hand in the background, sovereignly working in this really impossible situation that Pharaoh has decreed that all the infant boys will die. So that's impossible. If she gives birth to a son, he's going to die. And so you see this text unfolds his mother's desire to like trust God and that more. And we'll look at that. And next week we're going to see that as he grows up, he's driven out. So he's drawn up and he's driven out in the wilderness. And you're going to see what God does in his life. But what I want to remind you of this morning is this, that God has drawn you out of an impossible situation to use you in impossible situations. He has drawn you out, as we read from Ephesians 1. He has called you, chose you for adoption as sons, drawn you to himself. That was not your doing. He called you from out of death to life. That was impossible for us as sinners to save ourselves. God draws you out of that 
so that he can use you right at the edge of impossible situations to trust in Christ and to point others towards him. Now I look at this text again, the narrative of the Old Testament that, that I want you to insert, if you will, because if you look at this text, it's, it's a really familiar story. And I guess I would say the summary of it is you see Pharaoh's, uh, you see Moses' mom put him in a basket in the river and Pharaoh's daughter picks him up and takes him. And that's kind of like our summary of the story. But if you look at the text closely, you'll see a lot of detail in there that is true emotion, that is true trust of God. And you'll see a lot of details that are really important for understanding the rest of the story. So diving in, in verse one, you see here that a man from the house of Levi went and took his wife, a Levite woman. You can stop there and you can say, all right, why is that important? That's extremely important. You're going to learn more about it in the book. But what is the tribe of Levi set apart for? Anybody know? The priesthood. And so the tribe of Levi is set apart. And so it's really important that their son is going to come from the tribe of Levi. Now, if you flip ahead to Exodus 6, which you can if you want, it's a genealogy. But you're going to learn that Moses' mom's name here was, does anybody know it? Anybody know? Anybody? Jochebed? And Amram was a dad. Everybody knew that, right? Jochebed's a mom and Amram's a dad. That's right. Amram would be the grandson of Levi. And so Moses would be the great grandson, if you will, of Levi. And so Jochebed here is married to Amram. That's Moses' parents. They're from the tribe of Levi, which is set apart for the priesthood in the Old Testament. And what you're going to see as we look at this text and in future weeks as we look at the book of Exodus, there's a lot of crossover and foreshadowing of the life of Moses in the Old Testament in the life of Jesus. In fact, these two characters kind of like surmise, if you will, the Old Testament and the New Testament and, and bridged by King David, you're going to see this beautiful picture of God's story of redemption. Drawing Moses out for purpose in order to use him for an impossible situation of redeeming the people of Israel. Drawing Jesus, setting him aside in the way that he did in order to use him to redeem all of mankind to himself. Here's an impossible situation in verse 2. Hinting at this, the woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. Now you have to stop here and say, the moment that Jacobed had Moses, I mean, and, and mothers, maybe you can relate to this, there's a moment of heartache. There has to be. And that's why I say, insert yourself into this story because she's given birth to a son in that culture after Pharaoh has just decreed to kill all the infant boys and throw them in the Nile River. And so she has this baby and instantly she knows in her heart, and she has to know because this is the rule, right? That this child is going to die. She sees this baby and she sees that he is a fine child. For whatever reason, she decides to go against. And here's the part where, I, where you and I ought to start inserting, like, man, what is she thinking about at this moment? Like, that, that she goes against Pharaoh, that is God present in her heart. We have a lot of assumptions here that we can see in the text, but she hides the child for three months. Now, what's interesting about what she says is if you go back to the creation account, she says that she sees that he's a fine child. In another way of looking at this, she saw that he was good. Now, it's really fascinating the way that God wrote the scriptures authored through human authors by the Spirit, is that if you go back to the creation account, he created and he saw what? He saw that it was good. And so you see that Moses is introduced here, kind of like the beginning of the Exodus story, as God created the world, and it was the beginning of the earth. She looks here and has this crossover parallel, if you will, and saw that he was good. 
Moses was this fine child. There was something in there that she knew that God was going to use this child. Something in her heart, as if maybe God had, by his spirit, spoken that in that way to her. Something was good, and she hides this child for three months. Now, if you move to verse 3, if we had many of us who if have had a three-month-old know that they, as they grow, get a little harder to hide, right? Three months old, starting to like move around a little bit. And so she knows she can't hide this child forever. So what does she do? She could hide him no longer. She took for him a basket made of bulrushes and dubbed it with pitamen and pitch. And she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds. Now this is fascinating, right? Jacobed sees this child, but she can't do it anymore. He's getting bigger. And she decides to put him in the river after all. That was where this baby was going to land no matter what because the evil Pharaoh has like decided he wants to genocide all the male babies. And so she decides she'll put this baby in the river. This is, again, answer yourself, what in the world is she doing? What is her plan? Now she's put the child in the river, but she's put it safely in the river in a basket. But what is her plan? You start to see God's hand behind the scenes unfolding all of this. You get inside her head as... And, and as you stop here, like, why? And this is, this is studying the Bible. This is why it's so beautiful. And if you take the time to, like, look at the details, is it because she just doesn't, she can't take to watch him die? So she knows he's going to die. She can't hide him any longer. Does she put him in the basket because she just can't take the heartache? You see that in Genesis too, right? Abraham's maidservant, Hagar, has a baby. They're cast out in the wilderness, and she kind of prays the same thing. God, I cannot watch him die. Just take him from me. And so Pharaoh's mom, or Moses' mom, has this attitude of like putting this child in the basket, sending him off into the river. Now, here's another point in the story where I think it really has makes sense that we know some detail here. Now, if you put a child in a basket in Rock Lake, there's a pretty good chance somebody's going to come across that child, right? Safely. Sandy Beach, Northside, I don't know, but like somebody's going to know about it. But if you put a child in a basket in the Nile River, that's a little different. The current's a little stronger. That's not like a guarantee of like that basket making it safely to shore, And so she puts this child into the Nile, not fully knowing, I have to think, what God is going to do. It seems as though she has some kind of a plan, if you keep reading the story, because Moses' sister, Miriam, stood at a distance, verse 4, to know what would be done to him. Now again, a lot of assumption. I don't, like, we can't know that God spoke, like, Pharaoh's daughter is going to pick him up, mom, it's going to be fine, don't worry about it. Moses' sister stood at a distance, maybe just so she could know they picked him up and they killed him. He's gone. Just so she could have some conclusion and resolve to that, I don't know. But she stands, Miriam stands at a distance to watch her brother in the river float down And it happens in verse 5 that Pharaoh's women or Pharaoh's daughter and the women who are with her are walking down to bathe at the river while her young women walk beside. And she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. Now again, if you're not reading this narrative slowly and you're at the edge of your seat, now we know I read the text, like what's going to happen next. But if you're not sitting here in this moment going like, what is she going to do? Is she going to pick it up and bring it to her mean, mean dad and have him killed? I don't know yet. We're going to get to the end of the story, so don't worry about that part. But you have to read it like that. What is God doing in the background of this impossible situation? It looks like there's a plan, but we have to see here. Pharaoh's daughter and women take the child, 
And then in verse 6, and I want you to hold on to verse 6. It's going to be really important for where we go this morning. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. Not a huge surprise. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Again, this moment, she sees this baby, and I, here's the moment that, I, again, I want you to insert yourself into. When we stand at the threshold of impossible situations, we would often say, I just don't know how God can make this work. There's no other way that this resolves itself. Pharaoh's daughter looks at the baby, sees him crying, sees that it's a Hebrew child, and is now faced with a decision. What do I do with this child? And it says she took pity on him. Remember, Pharaoh is one of the most evil dictators to ever walk the face of the earth. I told you last week that Hitler was having similar conversations in the 30s and 40s. And here he is, decreed that all the male babies will die. And now his daughter, again, to go against Pharaoh is like big time problem, not a good idea. And here his daughter is with this child. And it says she took pity on him. So she has to make that decision like we do in impossible situations too. Do I trust God or do I trust man? Do I fear God or do I fear man? And it says that she had pity on him and takes him in. Verse 7. This is where the boldness of Miriam. I told you last week the faithfulness of how God has used women. Here's the boldness of Miriam, Moses' sister. Look what she does in verse 7. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, stop there. Egypt, Egyptian and Hebrew culture, not really mixing. There's a lot of hatred and dissension. And so if you go back to the 50s and 60s, it's much like um, maybe an African-American approaching a white person in this way to question authority or any way else. This was like a big divide. And she steps in to Pharaoh's daughter as if to like insert herself. I don't know how old Miriam is at this point, but she is faithful to God. And she approaches here and says, says essentially, Shall I go call you a nurse from the Hebrew women? So she does, much like Shipra and Pua, the two midwives we just saw in chapter one, faithfully like, I got to insert myself into the situation. This is an impossible situation. My brother's going to die. Should I go get one of the Hebrew women to nurse him for you? How many, now this is the, the beautiful part that happens next. And if you're a mom in the room, I just want you to see what happens next. Pharaoh's daughter, the answer to that question says to her, go, as if she didn't think about it. And again, I don't know if she, she was just like overwhelmed with who would put a baby in a basket. She just says, yeah, go. And the girl went and called who? Moses' mom. Look at verse 9. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Moses' mom, take this child away and nurse him for me and I will give you your wages. So the woman took her child. And... This works out really well. If you're a mom sitting here, and you're a taxi driver, and you do the laundry, and you do the dishes, and you do all this stuff for your kids, and like somebody comes and says, hey, you know what? I've been thinking. I want to pay you for that. <laughs> you're doing really good. And so Moses' mom, again, here's the roller coaster of events, puts his child, thinking he's going to be killed. Somehow Pharaoh's daughter finds this baby, comes back. Miriam inserts herself in the story, and they give this child back to his mother and says, you know what? Not only do you get to keep him for a while, but I'm going to pay you. Like you moms are sitting here and this like, God, now your prayers have changed, right? God, how come this hasn't happened to me yet? God, this is amazing. Underappreciated moms paid for their service. 
Moses is reunited with his mother in the middle of this impossible situation. In verse 10, it says, when the child grew up, and here's kind of like the bittersweet part of this story, but you know that God has a plan and a purpose. It says that when the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter. So she knows there's a day coming when she has to give him back. And she brings him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son, adopted, if you will. She named him Moses or Masha, short memory people, because she said, I drew him out of the water. An impossible situation that Moses' mom stood at the threshold of, that Moses' sister threw at, stood at the threshold, that Pharaoh's daughter even stood at the threshold, and God worked a way to draw him to himself so that he could use him. What we know about Moses, as many of us know this story, we'll look at it, is that Moses was used in the impossible to approach Pharaoh back, to ask to let these people, his people go, to journey with these whiners and complainers in the wilderness for 40 years. Impossible, you say, ultimately to bring them to redemption, pushing us ahead, anticipating Jesus coming in the fulfillment of redemption. Now, two things to take away for us this morning. The first is this, is that I want to remind you that God is working in your impossible situation, whatever that struggle is. And some of us are living in that now. Some of us have come out of that, and some of us may be going into that, but God is working. And if you can't see this from a really short text of a really simple story, then you've missed it. God is behind the scenes in all of this. And I want you to lean into that, into his grace, that he is working his plan Born of his promise, it just looks different than you thought it would. God has drawn you out, and I need you to know that today, of an impossible situation to use you in impossible situations. Some of you might be fearful, and you might be ready to give up. Like, there is no way God can bring this to redemption. There is no way God can reconcile this relationship. There is no way God could heal my body in this way. There is no way he could provide for me all that I need in this moment, in this time. Maybe that's where you are. And I would say, you know what? If that's where you are, you came to the right place today, but it's not like the worst of the worst place to be. God can still work in that despite your giving up. He could still redeem you and pick your head up. And maybe you're hopeful. Maybe you look out and say, man, I'm just glad you gave me that reminder. I know that God could do that. And maybe you struggle with that. That's where we live, on the threshold of that. Maybe you struggle to see, but maybe you have a little glimmer of hope, and I want to encourage that in you today. The text chosen for a call to worship and for our scripture reading this morning were intentional. Psalm 139 reminds us that God put you together. He knew all about you. He did that before you even came to be. Now, I shared this story with some of us, some of you in person, and I don't know that I've shared it up here. But as many of you know, Carrie and I went to Boston with Josiah about a month, two months ago by now. And we had gotten to our last appointment, which is the appointment that probably both of us dread the most because it was a genetic doctor. And and so the thing about genetics that you have to know is genetics and genetic doctors are really smart and they, they also focus on all like the mutated genes in order to find a diagnosis. So generally speaking, they're going to focus on all the things that are wrong 
in order to pronounce a diagnosis to look at, like, here's what happened to your child. And it's very scientific. And that's the only way that I can describe it. And so we have always been praying that God would be using Josiah in this story and changing our hearts in this. And yet this appointment, we kind of dreaded towards the end of a pretty good week. And it's pretty scientific. And so genetic doctors, God bless them. They don't mean it, I don't think, all the way. But a lot of them are just scientists and they don't have a lot of bedside manner. And so we just didn't like know how this would go because we try to focus on the good things about Josiah rather than all the negatives. And I got to tell you, like I didn't know this at the time. I kind of knew, but Carrie was like dreading this more than me. And we get into the room and this genetic doctor, he had a really long Asian name. I'm not stereotyping here. I just knew. I looked him up before. This guy's like a genius all genetic doctors are, and he comes into the room, and before we could even like anticipate the nonsense that would come out of his mouth, he starts by saying this, I want you to know, insert yourself into the story real quick, two parents sitting here who's journeyed like eight, almost nine years with Josiah, it's been a ride for sure, it's been one where a heart's been ripped out, and he starts here, and here we are anxious in the room at the moment, like we don't really want to hear this, and he says, I want you to know what happened to Josiah happened at the very beginning. At the very beginning. And it wasn't anything you guys did. This was just how he was to be. And I got to tell you, God in that moment met us in that room as if he said, I, I don't know if he meant to say it this way, but that doctor almost, I, the way he said that, Carrie and I went like all the way back to Genesis and all the way back further. The way that he said that as if he was saying, I just want you to know God knew about this. Now, genetic doctors don't say stuff like that, most of them. And it was as if God just inserted himself into the impossible situation of Josiah's life. And he said, I knew about this way before you even knew about this. Ephesians 1 goes back in the same way. Farther we read, Nancy read, reminds us that we are drawn out and chosen before the foundation of the world. God has known about you and your impossible situation for a very long time. And I have to admit, friends, that's hard for me to think about sometimes. I live in the here and now. We live with ahead of us. We don't get to see all that comes. And I live in the moment. It's hard for me to read this and step back and say, you mean all the tears, all the pain, all the wonder, all the confusion, all of that God's known about before? Yes. That's what we have to have hope for. You don't have to understand it to have faith in it. More than that, he's known about all those little details in the moment of your life spiritually where you fear and when you doubt and when you have anxiety, all those little things and all those little things that you don't see coming that he has seen ahead of time and planned for your good that would work out that way. And you don't have to understand that to believe in his love and goodness. In fact, I read it this way this week. God does not make his will clear to us because he values our being transformed more than our being informed. Think about that. Often we wonder, like, God, what are you doing in this impossible situation? And he often, as he does, he does not make that very clear. You don't get to see tomorrows all the time because he values more what it does in our life, in our transformation, then he values you being informed. Now we are Americans. We want our information. It just doesn't work. If you came here with that thought about who God is, I'm going to like burst the bubble today. He doesn't do it that way. He doesn't spell it out for you and say, you know what? When you're 20 years old, this is what it's going to look like. 
when you're 30, this is what it's going to look like. When you're 40, this is what it's going to look like. He doesn't give you all those. Do you know that this day you're going to lose your job? This day you're going to, your family's going to be broken apart? This day you're going to get cancer? He doesn't tell you all that stuff because he cares more about the process of transformation than he does of you and I being, and you don't have to understand that to believe and hope that he is good and loving. I want to tell you today, God is for you, Christian. What? Why do we see Moses? I, this is just like the connections. Why do we see Moses in the Bible on a flannel graph in Sunday school and say, man, God just did a thing in his life. He used him for good. And yet sometimes we just don't think the same thing about ourselves. How can we look at Moses as some elite, super spiritual, which he was not, by the way, read about that, and say, man, God just had his hand on him. He had a plan. He used him. He stood at the parted sea. And he just like, God just bring two and a half, three million people through the Red Sea. God, and they, like, God just like did all these things. He struck the rock. And man, Moses, how come we don't think that about ourselves? In the same way that God, maybe, maybe none of us will ever go across the Red Sea with two and a half million people. Like, I don't know how many dream that was in this room. Maybe he doesn't use it that way, but maybe he takes our impossible situations, has drawn us out, and uses us to glorify himself in impossible situations in the same way. God has drawn you out to use you for his glory and purpose, so step into that. That's the first thing. The second thing that I want you to see, is I said I'd go back to verse 6, and at that moment of compassion had by Pharaoh's daughter, I couldn't help but notice, and it was timely how it worked out in terms of pushing Orphan Sunday to today. I couldn't help but notice this small, potentially orphan child in the text who's floating down the river and think about the needs in our world that are burdened, that Amy Wallace is burdened by, that, that she desired to like have her, God use her to create this ministry, Seeds of Hope, and to step into that. So here's where I want to land this plane this morning. I told you one thing was just that you would know that God has brought you out of an impossible situation, drawn you out to be used. And here's the second thing, as I said, to see that this was in this text and to feel the weight of, of this need and burden. I have specifically just looked at this text. I've been praying all week and I came home this week and I, and I asked Carrie, I said, we've thought about fostering and adoption for a long time. And I said, is there any way we could do this? Is this something that we could do? And we're praying about that right now. And, and it's impossible with a kid like Josiah in our house to think that we could do that. And that's kind of what, where we're at. But I've been praying that this church, these people, of real hope, you and me, five families somehow this year would step into fostering or adopting. I can imagine the excuses that we all have, but I do know this, that God has given us much. He's given us homes. He's given us resources. And some of you are sitting here and you're thinking, I could never do that. Stay there in your impossible situation and stand on the threshold and say, could God be drawing me to use that? For whatever reason, God has chosen families to work his redemptive plan through. He's chosen Christian homes to raise up Christian kids. And, and many of us say this, like we're not evangelists. We don't, we don't speak the gospel in lots of ways. Sometimes God can use you just to raise a child in your home, to redeem that child and be used for his kingdom. And that's a really simple way. And some of us like, wow, that's the cost or, or the need. I don't know what God's gonna do from this, but I've been praying that God would use real hope at least five families over the next year would maybe step into fostering, or you would say, you know what? I can make any reason, excuse in the book for not adopting or not going on this trip. 
Whatever it is. And I'm not going to dictate that for you, like how God will use you, but I'm just asking you to pray about it, to let God do a work in your heart and stir your heart towards meeting this need. It all ends with our obedience, right? What are we going to do? The feared outcome I said last week, the feared outcome should never dictate our obedience. The cross is where we land. It was an impossible situation to those disciples as they watched Jesus be carried off. And that is where we ought to always land because the cross, the impossibility of all of that is what gives us hope, is what points us forward, is what God says, look what I've done for you. I've drawn you out of your own sin and selfishness and redeemed you and given you life so that you could go and be used as a blessing. I pray, church, that we would do that. We were dead without hope. There are many that are experiencing the same thing that you and I, because of all that God has given us, could step into that, not to be their savior, but to point them towards a savior. Amen? Let's pray together. I want to leave you with this, and I want to have you leave this as if he is surely saying this right directly to you today. Jesus' words, Matthew 8, or 19 rather, verse 26. But Jesus looked at them and said, with man... This is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Hold to that and go in faith now. Have a blessed day. Go in peace. You are sent.